We have been studying the book of Joshua together as a church, and we have been studying it the past several weeks in smaller sections. This morning, uh, we are going to consider a bigger section, uh, close to uh, three chapters, and we read significant portions of this section uh, during worship. And as we consider the chapters this morning, I want us to uh, see how Israel's story is our story. Now, when we say something like that and, and we think that about how Israel's story is our story, uh, we need to understand and readily acknowledge that we, we don't wage warfare against God's enemies today, but we are in a fight like Israel was in a fight. In fact, when the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, uh, Timothy was a young pastor, Paul said to him, fight the good fight of the faith. And as Christians, we are fighting this good fight. We are fighting against the influence of the world upon us, the unbelieving spirit of this age. Uh, the world is trying to conform us to its image instead of being conformed to the image of Christ. We are uh, fighting against our own flesh, against the remnants of sin that remain in us. Christ has freed us from the dominion of sin, but there are remnants of, of sin that we continue to fight against. And we also uh, fight against the devil. The Apostle Paul describes this fight in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we are in a fight. And by studying Joshua chapters 10 through 12, we learn how to fight the good fight of the faith. First, we see in our text that in our lives of faith, we need to be prepared for a long battle. We need to be prepared for a long battle. There is a, a telling verse in Joshua chapter 11, verse 18. This verse summarizes the battles that Joshua led Israel in fighting. And we read there, Joshua made war a long time with all of those kings. Now, we have to focus on that verse as we read this section of the book of Joshua so that we don't think this all happened really fast. Because, you know, as, as we read the Bible and as we read these chapters in particular, it can feel like things happen pretty quickly because each battle is only briefly described. You know, there simply uh, wasn't enough room in the text to include all the details of each battle that Israel fought in the land of Canaan. For example, if we look at Joshua chapter 10, verse 13, we read a summary of one of the battles. We read there, Then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish. Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. It's one verse, summarizes one of the battles. It's a brief description of Israel's victory over King Horam. But loved ones, we have to remember that that battle was difficult. And, and it required Israel to work, to fight, uh, to sweat, to strive for victory. See, each of these battles, as Joshua led Israel into conquering the southern and then the 
northern parts of Canaan. Each of these battles required Israel as a people together to work, to sweat, to fight, and to together strive for victory. And so it's crucial for us to understand Joshua chapter 11, verse 18, that Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. See, it wasn't easy. It wasn't quick. The war went on for a long time. Friends, this is a picture of the Christian life. The Christian life, which involves striving after holiness for a long time, for a lifetime, for our whole lives. We, we need to remember that we will never reach a point where we will stop fighting against Satan, against our own sin, and against the temptation of this world. We need to remember this, loved ones, so that we don't become discouraged and we don't become disillusioned in our lives. Because you know, it's easy for that to happen, isn't it? If we have the wrong understanding of the Christian life, it's very easy for us to become discouraged. You know, there are some Christians who, who teach that we can actually reach perfection in this life. And if, if we're not there yet, then something is wrong with us. Friends, that's not true. If, if we think, you know, I'm going to fight for a little while, and then I'm going to reach a point where I can relax, and then I don't have to work, I don't have to sweat, I don't have to fight, I don't have to strive anymore after holiness. Uh, friends, that will never happen. We need to be prepared for a long battle, a lifelong battle against Satan, against our sin, and against the temptations of this world. We uh, see a helpful of example of this in the Apostle Paul. Now, if anyone could have reached perfection, if anyone could have reached perfect holiness, uh, a place of ease in the Christian life, it would have been the Apostle Paul. But he never got there. No Christian will. Sanctification is a lifelong, ongoing process. Paul writes about this lifelong struggle in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning of verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning of verse 7, Paul writes about his uh, personal struggles. He says, So to uh, keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, what was this thorn in the flesh that God, in his good, uh, sovereign purposes, gave to the Apostle Paul? Well, we don't know for certain. You know, it might have been Paul's inner turmoil. Paul described how his heart broke for his fellow Israelites who remained in unbelief, for those who continued to reject Jesus. 
Paul was in turmoil over this reality. He was heartbroken over it. This thorn in the flesh could have also been opponents whom Paul faced in his ministry. You know, it, it wasn't just people outside of the church who were against Paul, but there were also people in the church who were very much against him, who uh, hated him, who, who sought to undermine him and to discredit him and his preaching by preaching a different gospel. It could also have been physical illness that Paul is speaking about, some disability that he had that caused him great pain and, and discomfort. And it could also have been the oppression that Paul faced from uh, Satan as Paul was one of Satan's main targets. But you know, Paul, he even gives us a summary statement of what he faced during his lifetime. He writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 24, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, was pelted with rocks. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure, and apart from these things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. I believe that the Holy Spirit, in his infinite wisdom, did not inspire Paul to name exactly what this thorn in the flesh was in order that we could all relate to it. And notice that Paul struggled with it for life. It was a lifelong battle. He, he prayed that God would remove it, but God, in his infinite wisdom, knew better. Three times I pleaded with the Lord, says Paul about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Friends, we learn here about endurance in the Christian life, about hanging in there, Joshua made war a long time with all those kings, and the apostle Paul carried the thorn of his flesh for his whole life. Both of these men, and you and I, in this lifelong process, in this lifelong battle, the promise is that as we fight, we will be sustained by God's daily grace. And so in our lives of faith, we need to see first that we are to be prepared for a long battle, and second, we need to be encouraged by final victory. Be encouraged by final victory. In Joshua chapter 10, we read last week about the five kings who opposed Joshua because of the Gibeonite Treaty. You recall from our previous studies how the Gibeonites tricked Israel into making a covenant with them in order to prevent Israel from destroying them and, and their trick worked. And when the other people in the land heard about the Gibeonites' treaty with Israel, they went to war against the Gibeonites. And in response, Israel 
showed itself faithful to the covenant it had made with the Gibeonites, and it went to war to fight with them. And ultimately, Israel was victorious against these five kings. And when Israel had the five kings trapped, we read in Joshua chapter 10, verses 24 through 25, that Joshua summoned all the men of Israel, and he said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone out with him, he said, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Now this, what we read here is, was an ancient practice in the Middle East. Conquering kings and victorious generals would often be depicted as putting their feet on the necks of their enemies. This was a sign of, of victory. And Joshua called his men of war to do this to the kings who were living in opposition to God and to Israel. And while you know, this is a violent image, loved ones, we need to remember that this was God's judgment on those who lived in Canaan. Remember that 400 years before this, God told Abraham that he would give him the land of Canaan, but God showed patience, giving those in Canaan time to repent. In Genesis 15, we read about this promise to Abram, that you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and your descendants shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So since the conquest happened, we need to understand that God was bringing the judgment that he had warned about. Israel was God's means of bringing that judgment upon uh, the people in Canaan. When we read about the Canaanites and the way that they lived, uh, they lived in open opposition to God. We read about their sinfulness in Leviticus 18, that the Canaanites practiced uh, child sacrifice, they practiced all forms of sexual sin, and all kinds of other things that were not pleasing to God. They were directly against his holy law. But we see that rather than destroying them immediately, God chose to wait centuries to bring judgment. He chose to wait centuries to bring judgment, giving the people in Canaan time to repent. But when their iniquity was complete, when their sin reached its full measure, the judgment that God brought on those in Canaan was a just judgment for sin. Those who repented like Rahab were spared, but those who remained in unbelief and hard-heartedness toward God were judged. This is like the flood that we read about in the book of Genesis, or God's judgment upon uh, the uh, Egyptians, or his judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, loved ones, in all of these things, rather than being discouraged as we think about them, we need to actually be encouraged. We need to be bold in our faith and emboldened in our faith because these pictures of judgments are all pointing forward to the final victory. The final victory where sin and evil will be fully and completely destroyed. These are 
signs, they're indications that sin and evil will not win. This is what Joshua was driving home to his fighting men when he had them put their feet on the necks of those defeated kings who opposed God. And he said that the Lord will do the same to all of his enemies. It's an encouraging picture because it's a reality that sin will not win. Satan will not win. We actually see pictures of this final victory throughout the Bible. In Psalm 110, verse 1, King David wrote that the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now David was speaking of a king who was greater than him, whom David himself, himself calls Lord. And you know, who was David foreseeing here? Well, the New Testament tells us that David was foreseeing Christ. David, in this psalm, was foreseeing the day when all of Christ's enemies would be put under his feet, a picture of complete victory. The Apostle Paul describes this final victory in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where he writes, Then comes the end, when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. This is a wonderful source of encouragement, loved ones, for us in this lifelong battle. Christ will have the final victory over all his and our enemies. Satan and sin will not be victorious. Christ will be victorious. And so even as we struggle daily, and even as God gives us daily grace and he gives us means to sustain us, like the sacraments, like his word, like prayer, fellowship that we have together, loved ones, we can also be encouraged by the knowledge that this will end in glory. Like the marathon runner who sees the finish line and is encouraged by the reality that it is coming and it is coming soon. In fact, we read that after Israel conquered northern, uh, uh, northern Canaan, we read in chapter 11, verse 23, that the land had rest from war. You know, this is a, a picture of that final day for us as Christians when we will die or where we will go to be with Christ and we will go to be with Christ or perhaps Christ will return in our lifetimes. It, it's a picture of that final day when we will have Rest for more. It's a picture of glory. The joy we find is in knowing for certain that that day will come, loved ones, when Jesus, our greater Joshua, will have the full and the final victory. And lastly, in our lives of faith, we need to be encouraged by our daily victories. We need to be encouraged by our daily victories. If you have your a copy of Scripture open to the passage today, I encourage you to look at Joshua chapter 12. Joshua chapter 12, it's a chapter that you'll notice uh, lists all the kings and all the leaders that Israel defeated under Moses' leadership and then later under Joshua's leadership. This chapter lists by name over 30 kings and leaders that 
Israel defeated as they entered into the promised land. Now, why would the Holy Spirit, who we know inspired the scriptures, why would the Holy Spirit have all the names of these defeated kings uh, listed here? As one theologian puts it, he says, seeing all of these names does not engulf us in a glow of devotional warmth, right? It doesn't stir our heart necessarily, a chapter like this. Chapters in the Bible like Romans chapter 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapters, you know, we, we love to read uh, parts of Scripture like that because they stir our hearts. But what about Joshua chapter 12? Well, this chapter is, is a record of God's faithfulness to his people, loved ones. Each of these uh, defeated kings is evidence that God did not fail in his covenant with Abraham. In his promise that he would give him and his family a land, each of these names reflects a battle that God's people fought and that God's people won by uh, God's grace. And the Holy Spirit inspired the author to write each name, to record each victory. See, rather than just shortening the chapter to one verse and saying, Israel defeated a lot of kings, each defeated king is listed to show God's faithfulness in each victory. You know, as we uh, think about our own lives, loved ones, we learn here how important it is to be detailed in identifying the specific ways that God has helped us and that God has blessed us in our lives. Now, many of us usually do this on Thanksgiving Day when you're uh, sitting around the dinner table. You know, that moment where the food's on the table, it smells good, it's uh, nice and hot, and then uh, someone has the brilliant idea of, hey, let's, before we start eating, go around the table and each talk about the things that we're thankful for, right? And, and you're thinking in your mind, everybody better keep their list really short, I want to encourage you and encourage myself this morning that we be more consistent in specifically identifying how God has been good to us, especially in in the daily victories that he has blessed us with. We know that each of us has sin in our lives, and each of us has particular sins that we struggle with. And sometimes those particular sins can be all-consuming. They can overshadow the way the Holy Spirit is daily working in our lives and granting us growth in grace. For example, let's say a Christian struggles with bitterness about the past, and he, he prays daily for God's grace to help him overcome the bitterness. And some days are good, but other days he, he still, fall, still falls back into feeling bitter about the past and therefore disillusioned about the future. And you know, in the moments when we fail in, in one area, it feels like we're total failures. And we can begin to feel in those moments that the Spirit is not at work at all in our lives. Friends, we need to be careful that we are not consumed by those particular sins, that we are not uh, so focused on them that we miss the numerous and the various ways that the Spirit is at work in each of our lives, bringing about Christian maturity, Christian uh, growth, 
how we are becoming more loving toward others, more patient, more gentle, because the Spirit is at work in our lives. Being a Christian, loved ones, means that we have the Spirit, that we have been born again, and He is working in us moment by moment to make us more like Christ. You know, as Reformed folks, we're really good at total depravity, at identifying it and at confessing sin. And we're really good at identifying our own uh, personal sin. That might be a source of pride for some people. I'm really good at identifying my sin, right? But loved ones, we also need to be good at identifying how the Spirit is at work in our lives. Not generally, but specifically. Those daily victories over sin and daily growth in grace. We read this wonderful promise in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you and in me, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Notice that it's not that he might bring it to completion, depending on how he feels. And it's not he might bring it to completion depending on how we do. No, it's good work that God sovereignly began in us by his Holy Spirit. And the promise is that he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There will be complete victory. But that work is ongoing in our lives. It involves daily growth, daily maturity, daily sustaining grace that God gives us. Friends, he who began a good work in you and in me, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many blessings that we have received in our union with Christ by faith. We thank you for the assurance that the good work you began in us you will also complete at the day of Christ Jesus. Grant us strength in our fight against sin, against Satan, and against the temptations that this world poses to us. Cause us to love Christ more than the fading pleasures of sin. We ask you to write your word now upon our hearts and be with us this week as we seek to do your will and to give you glory in what we think about, in what we say to others, and in all our works. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray.